Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel them both and be one traveler, long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. You might recognize that as the opening stanza to the Robert Frost poem, uh, the, the Road Not Taken. It's the poem that ends, uh, two roads diverged in the wood and I took the one last traveled by and it has made all the difference. It's probably even more familiar. I remember being exposed to that poem. Uh, it was probably the first poem as a whole poem that I was actually taught or read, really fully exposed to. I think I was a freshman in high school. And as I was exposed to and read and saw this poem really for the first time, I, two things happened in me that I recall. One was a kind of, I guess, embarrassed response. Poetry, poems, <laughs> were, were written by and for hyper-emotive, weird people. And that if you were into poems and you liked poetry, then you must be a hyper-emotive and weird person. Uh, I was on the football team. I ran track. I was a guy. <laughs> that was the one thing happening in my brain. The other thing happening in me was that I was really resonating and I really liked the poem and I really liked the rest of the, the, that section in our English class about poetry. Something about the, the very intentional use and shape and reframing of words actually resonated with my soul. That tension resolved itself over years uh, till beginning and even later in high school. As life got weirder and required more complex and deeper emotional responses, poetry became an actual feature in my life. That's something I attempted to write, but definitely I started reading more poetry all the way through college and, and, and to be entirely honest, really in the last decade or so. The, the more I've spent time intentionally on, in, in my own inner universe, and done my best to come alongside people working in the arts and working in religious spaces where life is hard and complex and weird and strange. Uh, poetry has not just become a, a useful tool uh, or a powerful practice. It has become a really safe, generative, and transformative aspect, expression. It's a beautiful part of my life. Uh, I listened to Scott Cairn's read and lecture at the Festival of Faith in Writing, I believe it was in 2016. And not just, not only was I struck by uh, his, his writing and the way he read the things he wrote, I was really captured by the way he talked about his work. That's one of those, it's one of those aspects of art making uh, that oftentimes inspires me. So someone who's excellent in their craft and has the ability to talk about what they do, how they do it, and why they do it. Um, I've been thinking about and hoping to, to catch Scott to talk about uh, the power of poetry, the essence of poetry, and the necessity of poetry for a, long, a really long time. And so I'm really glad I got some time to sit down with him. I enjoyed this conversation. I think you will as well. Thank you for joining me this morning. Sure. Or this afternoon. Oh, it's almost this afternoon. You're on the West Coast. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We you're share. in the. We're, we share a time zone. Yeah. Uh, you're in the Pacific Northwest. I am now. Yeah. And that is where you're from originally as well. Yeah. In fact, this house my dad built, and, and wow. when we inherited it about six years ago, that's when we made the play to. Uh, come back from the wilderness, which I've been wandering for 40 years. <laughs> well, where where was the wilderness? I know you spent some time in Utah. Where was the wilderness? Well, I initially left here, uh, I guess in uh, 1977, to go to graduate school in Virginia. Hmm. And then uh, from there to graduate school in Bowling Green, Ohio, and then from there to teach for a while at Kansas State University, and then yeah. to do a PhD at the uh, University of Utah, and then to teach at North University of North Texas, and then to teach at Old Dominion University, and then to teach at University of Missouri, where I was for nearly 20 years, and then yeah. until we left there to come here. Um, did it feel like coming home? Did this... Yeah, is, yeah. Did this <laughs> I mean, to some degree, I mean, it might be obvious for, for you know, for some people, but, you know, coming back to a house your father built 
How important is geography to you? When you think of home, was the Pacific Northwest was always home, regardless of where you were. Has been. It's always, and I guess I've thought of it over the years as the landscape of my imagination. And so even when I was away, I was I was probably a lot of the figuration in my poems over, you know, forty plus years has included uh, sort of northwesty flora and fauna. Yes. Uh, array of such and uh so no it, it's always it's always been where my mind dwells even though my body was moving around talk to me ab- about moving and about being elsewhere was it a, a, a do you do you create a sense of home when you're out and you're living somewhere else or does it feel more like or is the experience more like i am somewhere for work for some folks they'll be in a place even for six seven ten years yeah. And there, and it's like it's like being in a like a uh, like a long term, uh, what's it like satellite location, uh, yeah. where they're like working away from home for for close to a decade. Do you create a sense of home? We, we've all, yeah, I have always felt pretty much at home with the community that you know we've always established something of a community, or you know allowed others to establish something yeah. of a community with us, and uh, and have always been. Fo- you know, relatively fully engaged, I suppose, yeah. in that community. And uh, it has always been home. My children were born in Utah, uh, raised in Texas, Virginia, and Missouri. <laughs> and, uh, you know, wherever they were, where my wife, Marcia, was, in our whatever Labrador, whatever iteration of Labradors we had at the moment, you know, that was home. A dog was a key element to home. We've always had uh, dogs, and we've mostly had Labradors, which are the best dogs. I'm sorry to I'm. I hope you don't get mail about that. <laughs> you never know these days. You get like whatever. <laughs> I don't know what I don't. Know, I don't know what trips people up anymore. We would just kind of talk about everything. You've been writing for a number of years. The uh, ten or yeah. depending on how you count, ten or eleven volumes of poetry. Um, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about um, the like the impetus for mm-hmm. poetry in your life from the outset and then ongoing? In other words, yeah. what leads what leads you to begin writing in general, but specifically to write poetry? Yeah. And then what keeps you coming back? There he is, right there. There's a Labrador, which I just talked about. Like, speak of the Labrador, and it will appear. Uh, what leads you initially to begin writing in general, but specifically to write poetry? And then what keeps you coming back? Yeah. To poetry? Because it's not the only work you do, but you continue to come back. Mostly and what I do. Yeah. yeah. But um, I, I'd say that it's changed somewhat over the years. Initially, I suppose it had to do with uh, engage. Well, maybe that hasn't changed. Engaging what I read is, has always been part of the mix. Hmm. Um, and uh, giving, I think initially giving voice to something that was in me in response to those things. And and that may still be, maybe it hasn't changed, but uh, I think I was more concerned early on with expression. And, uh, okay. and now, now I'm curmudgeonly enough to insist that literature, especially poetry, is, is not primarily a the art of expression hmm. uh, I've moved from if there's a spectrum from poetry is just expressing yourself <laughs> to I'm at the other end <laughs> where poetry is more of a way of knowing it Interesting. It, becomes, it, it has become for me increasingly over these decades a uh, a way to find out not just what I think but find out what I don't think Find out what I know, and not just to put language to what I think I know, but more, more importantly, to come to terms, quite literally, come to terms with, uh, I'd say, provisional terms hmm. with uh, the mystery that I that I hunger to un- to apprehend and uh, long to apprehend, and I think that. Probably since my second book, that's been how I operate, uh, writing to find out rather than writing to express. And I would I would just suggest the youngish writers <laughs> who may have drunk the Kool-Aid of 
poetry as self-expression to spit that stuff out and, and drink something else. <laughs> and to uh, some degree, it, it's almost necessary, right? To, to, to have that season uh, in I which suppose, you're maybe yeah. self-expressive to kind of get that out of the old system to make room well, for a new thing. Yeah. I, I, I guess that's where one learns to articulate, you know, there's a sort of amorphous thought going on sure. in your head and you want to put it into an utterance. And so the, the, the correlation between this sort of vague impulse of thought uh, to an articulation, you need to learn how to do that, certainly. Yeah. <laughs> but then at some point, I think the language itself leads the real poet. Yeah, well, I think this is true for any any writer. Okay. Uh, not just poets, but you, you you learn to engage your own language to such a degree that you you see what's hiding in it that you didn't notice before, and this is I don't, and there are a lot of ways to get at that. Yes. One of the ways that I've often advocated in my teaching was that students they don't have to become fluent in other languages, but they really are selling themselves short if they don't learn some Romance language or Latin itself and a good bit of Greek in order to actually even know what English does. Uh, our language is a wonderful language for poetry, particularly because it's haunted hmm. by so much other connotative pressure. And hmm. uh, and if you're ignorant of the Latinate languages and if you're ignorant of Greek, you really don't know the language you ostensibly are working with. The more you see those languages haunting suggestively how a word mean an English word means yes. or how it reaches its connotative span. Uh, the better off you'll be at doing this thing. I want I want more of us to do. When we make yes. is to is to let the language teach us something. Oh, that's beautiful. Not not just not just to put from my head into your head something yeah. I thought, but but to look at the poem on the page as a scene of meaning making yes it's not the end of a story it's the beginning of a story i want this is how i read not just poetry this is how i read <laughs> it's to let you, you, the, the phrase you used to use which i thought was fantastic is to let the language even as a writer to let the language teach us something as opposed to the more yeah. i think i'm going to get this correct not correct I, I think is what i mean to say um as opposed to the more uh controlling uh, use of language that I have words right. that I'm going to use to achieve a certain goal or to make a certain impact. That's basically it, the act of denotation, which is a useful thing, <laughs> a useful act. Uh, there are a lot of there are a lot of texts that we really love for their denotative capacities or yes. abilities. You know, like Christmas Eve, you're putting a bicycle together when everyone's sleeping. Yes, it's, it's really good to know how these words can teach you to do that thing. Yes. But because it, if Ikea sent you home with the, exactly. with a, with a poem, you're in trouble. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, thing, things are already but, in Swedish. Yeah. So there are, there are, denot I mean, there's a lot of, most of what we do with language is, you know, to respond to its denotative abilities and, and benefit from them. But, but when it comes to making literature, and in particular poetry, I think the connotative uh, reach of a word is far more far more pertinent to our accomplishment. Um, as an educator and a writer, mm -hmm. uh, I'm thinking a little bit about have a, a touch of conversation here about audience, uh, your audience in a classroom versus versus your audience on the other side of of a volume of books. Yeah, uh, or or, or a, a, a a a book. Um, can you talk a little bit about language, particularly among uh college age students, and the impact maybe you've seen or the influence you may have seen with regards to the way the uh, social media, the internet, and folks uh, engaging in language online mm -hmm. has maybe changed the way we embrace, take in. Uh, use language because if what we're talking about is you know if you know we hang you know the, the launching point being at the allowing language to teach us something versus using our words to accomplish the thing 
most yeah. of what I experience online is very controlled. I mean, from, you know, Twitter saying you have so many words to get to, but <laughs> yeah. um, ha has there been, like there's a greater uh, access to, to a breadth of expressiveness online. So people have a broader access to a lot more expressions, different languages. Um, but the, the machinery seems to bend folks towards utility rather than knowledge. You can use language right, right. you know yourself. Has it had a qualitatively negative experience? Like folks' use of well, the don't internet? You think, yeah, don't you think so? I don't know. <laughs> this is why I asked the questions. I, I'm not sure. Yeah. Like I, I think the, I, I think the easy answer is no, but I don't, I'm not sure. I, I'm trying to pay attention to it because it, it's pervasive and well yeah i think the solipsism is uh, destructive and and if in fact all your time is spent expressing your own learned or less learned opinion on a matter um the less the more time you spend doing that with your language the less you're likely to find the thing that will free you from your own impulses, be they good or bad, you know. Um, yeah, I I don't spend a lot of time reading a lot of... I, I do spend time on social media. I have friends with whom I communicate that way, and I don't want to lose touch with them, but but by and large, my 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 experience on such media uh over the long over the, you know most generally speaking yeah it it's just further evidence of how language as expression can really poison the mind hmm. and really uh, sink the heart and really isolate the individual no matter how social that seems it really is all one's own interior monologue that sh that shuts out the dynamic conversational possibilities which mm -hmm. would free us from ourselves mm -hmm. and connect us to others and connect us to our god uh, ostensibly yes um, the, the mystery is what i'm after and what we're talking about now is is almost seems to be uh, a really intentional insulation from the mystery. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. one of the things that poetry, I'm not, big, I'm not a big fan of the, of the, of that discourse. <laughs> Understandable. Okay. Uh, one of the things you, uh, you said a moment ago, you talked about a connection to other people uh, and that yeah. you, this is a, 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 a worthwhile and I think accurate critique of a lot of the way uh, social media postures us is a kind of de uh, deterioration of that connection between people. Whereas the one of the the gifts at times or hopeful gifts of poetry or thoughtful language is that connection that a person has as a reader to yeah. a work or to the artist, Seth Godin, one of the things I come back to often, Seth Godin suggests that art is anything someone creates that forges a connection between people, that it's really the connection that makes it art. How aware are you of your readership as you're either writing or uh, collecting a, a volume of poetry? It was uh, your most recent piece uh, I believe it's called Anaphora, if I'm saying that correctly. Anaphora, yeah. Anaphora. As you're collecting the, the pieces or writing these pieces, are how aware are you of your readership, of those who come to it? Are, uh, do you have folks in your mind? Like, What role does that play in the process of writing, collecting, and assembling a volume of poetry? I, I have to say, to be honest, not much. Fascinating. <laughs> yeah, go on. Say more. Yeah. Well, as I've suggested the purpose my the reason i keep writing is because i want to keep knowing um what someone else gets out of it i pray that someone gets something out of it but my goal is to build a thing on a, 
on a page that that isn't just delivering what I made of it, <laughs> but is making a space hmm. where the reader can make with it and bring his or her or their own matter to bear upon that language on that page. Yes. And to make something of it. Literally just to make something of it, make make meaning with it. This is, so to anticipate how they might do that is kind of it strikes me as futile. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> I don't know what their baggage is, what they're gonna bring to the page. So how how would I imagine I'd be writing in order to facilitate their yeah. doing something with that matter on this page? Well, I can't, so I don't. <laughs> what I can do is see how this this word choice, this line shape, this turn opens me bit by moment by moment through the poem. I see how word choices and line breaks, uh, various sejura mm. facilitate my seeing for a moment more than I meant to say. Mm. And that, and if I do that, then I'm keeping that. <laughs> and and uh, I, I can't anticipate the cues that another might, you know, I, I've, I have a sense of how people who actually read poetry might read this but you know that that that's not that that's not a high percentage of our population no it's not <laughs> the people who actually read poetry and pour over poetry i think those who do would share with me this notion that the, the poem isn't a coded message behind which is some meaning the poet is hiding from them um i know that this is how Though my own father didn't teach this way, he was an English teacher in high school. Um, not my high school, but in, he was a high school English teacher who knew how poems worked. I learned from him how poems worked. But I also know that I took creative writing classes in, in high school and college, and I know that people basically present these as encoded, encrypted messages yes. from evidently inept messengers who, <laughs> who, who yes you know, how many times have you heard what is the poet trying to say you know yeah think, or oh, what is this or what does this what does this mean yeah as a yeah. but both of those are are missing the point the, the poet isn't trying to do anything but make a poem to what the poet is trying to say if he wanted if there was something a poet a gifted accomplished writer was trying to say he damn well say it and you'd get it but why is the poem difficult well the poem is difficult because there's more to what it can say interesting than the poet might anticipate and and that's why the poet makes the poem is so that the poet can himself herself herself see something more than what uh what was already thought and one might hope that's why the reader reads is not to that, get the message on the other side, but to yeah, actually do that same work internally. Yeah. And people who read poetry as a matter of, uh, you know, and in, in have poetry reading as part of their lives, they know that they don't need to be told that. Uh, yes. A lot of people will pick up a poem and they'll try to do this other thing with it. Say, well, what's what's he hiding from me? <laughs> I don't. I don't. It's difficult. I don't quite see all the. I don't see the meaning here. Well, they could learn to. I mean, it, it, it would take discipline and practice and repeated exposure to that sort of discourse to be able to benefit from it. Yes. In that way, to open their own imaginations to making something of language. But um, so, no, I don't write for them. <laughs> and and uh, they don't read for me. So fascinating. That's fantastic. <laughs> We have, we have an agreement. We have an agreement. Excellent. They don't read me and I don't write to them. I worked with a visual artist a number of years ago uh, here in the Bay Area. Her name is Laura Van Duren. And, um, oh, yeah. I know Laura Van Duren's poetry. Is there a relationship there? I'm not totally sure, actually. Uh, could be. I, but in, in, in relationship to this conversation, she... I, it, 
visual artists often have the same uh, sort of catching point with like new viewers or with the general populace in general with, you know, what does this mean? What's the, that this is this thing you've done must be coded. What's re- what's it really about? And she created, she, she started to do a number of pieces, but she initially created this very, very large installation piece large enough that you could, could and were invited to climb inside it. It was this massive piece. It was like oh, two great. stories tall. And on the inside of the piece um, were 30 or 40 pens dangling and you and as viewers would climb would climb these ladders they were invited to take the pen and draw write some sort of like what are you now that you're in this piece mm-hmm. what's in what's in you and she began this conversation and so instead of answering the question yeah verbally like this is what this piece is about in, in you know inviting those who are engaging with the piece like no 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 the the, the question i'm 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 asking a question with this piece i'm not yeah. trying i'm i'm putting this on the table so that yeah. you can engage and do your own work of self examination and yeah uh it was a fascinating uh, it was that work uh, and the the way she the way she executed that unpacked a lot for me as an artist yeah. like oh, that's right yeah. i mean it's a bit scandalous to let someone else or when it it seems scandalous to let someone else do what they will with your piece. The other side of that coin is like, is that not what we do anyways, when you release it into the world, as soon as it's on a page and you don't have it in your head anymore, you are actually doing that with folks. It is, it is the, uh, the risk we take by having an audience as an artist is they're going to do with this something other than what you would command or demand. Or at least she's collecting some data for how those responses might Exactly, might result, and so no, that's that's a real, I fascinating. I like that very much. You know, I was I've been lately thinking about, but I'm moving away from teaching altogether, but sort of running spiritual writing retreats, not mm-hmm. not workshops per se, but just writing retreats where we talk about you know a bunch of people who want to do spiritual writing of whatever genre. Yeah, and we find a nice place on Whidbey Island. We tuck ourselves away for a long weekend and visit. And uh, so, so, so thinking ahead to doing that in the future, I'm thinking about well, what might we say to begin this so it doesn't feel like I just a waste of time for everybody. And I thought, <laughs> right, well, begin with a question is yeah. actually what came to my mind. You know, what is spiritual writing? Well, it's always it's it's never something that begins with a declaration. <laughs> yes, it's always it's it's always something that begins with a question. So I I think. Mm. Uh, that that kind of contextualizes the whole project, you know. At least my experience of my own project over the past several decades is, you know, begin with the question. And when I sit down to write, begin with the question: what What do I want to know? Well, I want to know everything. So, <laughs> that's what we're it. but but uh, but um, I I I think the spiritual life is really one of continuing to begin every day with a question. And, mm. And then, I guess through discipline and prayer and whatever vocational gifts one might have, you employing those to listen for answer for you know provisional answers. I think all answers, of course, are provisional because we don't have the big picture. But yes, we have a discrete, albeit authentic, picture moment in that yeah. span of things. And so the answers come, but the, you have to be. Re- respected as provisional mm, that's good serving the moment maybe not serving tomorrow's moment but. that leads me to um talking about spiritual writing and uh writing as a way to know you uh, among your works you uh did i think it was uh, a one volume of uh, translations of christian oh, mystical right. writing yeah i'd love to hear i'd love for you to uh, share a little bit about what you I don't want to the the broader way to ask the question. What was that like for you? I want to ask something something in the midst of some some sort of combination of what was it like for you? What did you learn? And and how like how were you, how did you see yourself and and God differently on the other side of a work like that? Hmm. Well, most of those people that I whose works I poured over to that degree, I think, I mean, that's the, that's the great advantage of 
attempting translation, regardless of one's facility with the other languages. You know, there are lexicons you can have at, and you can, you know, slowly, slowly, slowly parse together some, some making choices along the way, you know, seeing something being said, uh, glimpse something being said in your language, which was just previously in another language. And hmm. that kind of uh, mind opening, language opening exercises, uh, very efficacious in any case. Hmm. But in the case of working with these particular texts, um, I, I, you know, I, I did some other texts which I just ended up not thinking were worth sharing, but um, these ones, in every case, so I thought I thought of them as actual uh, mystics, people who uh, had apprehend had glimpsed something true. Hmm. Uh, they had. I don't know how you. I don't know where you line up on the, on the notion of inspiration. But you know, I I don't believe that we, even the scriptures are, verbatim. Uh, dictated texts, but what they are, are human expressions, given a god and a sort of, illumination, hmm. uh, that results in a vision, and the vision the theoria as we like to say in yes. Greek, yep. uh, the theoria is is not exactly verbal, hmm. but to share it, these mystics have recourse to their to, to verbal yes. expression, or at, you know, they wrestle with it into their own languages and come up with something, and uh, also provisional, you know, uh, never eclipses the the mystery but always if if it's working well gives act gives some degree of access to that yes. mystery and uh, so yeah i poured over these texts slowly slowly my greek isn't that good most of those most of those were greek the ones i love most well though were syriac and i don't have any syriac so i was working off of Greek and English translations of Saint Isaac of Syria, whose works I just love, and um, I don't think I think I'm too old to learn Syriac, so I'm going to have to <laughs> stick with the Greek and the English. But the uh, you know these are men and women who have, through a life of prayer, come to some point at which they apprehended more than we do typically, and took took the time to share it and then it opened me up to a lot of notions I I hadn't anticipated so yeah. the the practice it was finally that volume was very selfish it was very self-serving because it really in what did. way well it, it it gave me a taste of of their vision hmm. and uh my own prayer life has you know been intermittent over the years and uh, you know, off and on uh, accommodating to a vision, <laughs> but, but you know, nothing you can count on. So, <laughs> <laughs> so if you can find, if you can find other doorways into the vision, take it, take, open those doors. And that's what, that's how I thought of, that's how I think of that book. And that's how I think of that practice. Yeah. I still do. I'm, I'm still working on stuff like that, but translation know. work. Yeah, yeah, I'd say it's. Um, I, I tend to call them paraphrases when I'm working. Uh, when I'm working off of languages I don't own, like for instance, the book I'm working on now is one of the books I'm working on now is a, a sort of a selection of sayings from Saint the homilies of Saint Isaac of Syria. Hmm. He's like the best of all saints. It's like the Labrador is the best of all dogs. Well, Saint <laughs> Isaac is the best of all saints. So uh, there might be. It might be controversial, 
Yeah, that's the, that's the other volume. There's the academic <laughs> volume that's just strictly the Saints, and then the the popularized volume, the Chicken Soup for the Soul volume, yeah. includes the dog. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, I've been working with Saint Isaac of Syria, though he's I've been reading him for at least a couple decades now, and uh, and um, the uh, the result has been, uh, you know, when when you pour over a text. That that discreet of a so I just pull out a piece of it and I pour over it and I mess with it and I study it and I read it again and again and I kind of work out my translation again and again and again and you know that that slow 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 process does yield however you know great benefit for glimpsing something that hadn't been glimpsed and that's yes you know, I, I this is the same song I keep singing to you is that that's, you know, that's, that's a great song why I do it is so that I see more. Yes, uh, a little bit more each time I set out, and uh, that. So I'm working on that. I'm working on some other things with Greek poets. Yeah, not necessarily religious Greek poets, but you know Greek poets. Can you talk a, a little bit about the the relationship between uh, in in your life specifically, but maybe even more broadly, if you feel comfortable doing so, or yeah. the relationship between. Uh, creative writing like creativity and language mm -hmm. and and religious practice that uh and yeah. i asked this specifically because so much of uh western definitely evangelical mainline christian practice is language based and highly controlled that there are particular words that mean particular things for the particular culture yeah. can can we stipulate that the language upon which that is based is i'd say not quite well received language i mean it, it's it's it becomes it's language treated as if language were a brittle yes Im immobile thing <laughs> this is what i'm this is what i'm actually asking so talk there is a so the, yeah there's so like a courage what, in would, creative writing yeah so i'm still thinking of myself as an evangelical um yes because i know what the word means <laughs> It means it's 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 a faith based upon the evangel, which are the gospels. Uh, what you find, I think, unfortunately, amongst self-identifying evangelicals these days, is a privileging of Leviticus over the gospels. So yes. I would call them Leviticals more than I would call them evangelicals, and that there's a kind of a rigidity. Even but even the Levites and even the Jews who read texts don't read texts that way. They don't read their own Leviticus the way. An evangelical would read Leviticus. They see they see it as the end of the story, and you know a rabbi reading the text sees it as the beginning of the story, or more the way Laura Venderen presents that piece to her right. audience is it's an yeah. invitation in, yeah. and a, and the beginning of a it's the beginning of your retreat on Whitby Island. It's a question, yeah. yeah, as opposed to here's the statement, move on from here. It's an invitation, yeah. yeah. Um. This is so, part of what I'm asking is like it that's a uh is that predominantly a language problem? Is that predominantly an issue? Is the the Yeah, it's a chicken or the egg. I don't know. Is it predominant it's 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 reading to see what you want to see. It's always a bad idea. <laughs> right? Project yeah. Projecting on this let's let's can we let's agree that the 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 texts of our sacred our sacred literature yes those texts are live texts yes they're not dead they're no. not they're not they don't and they're not just retrospective they're prospective so if if you look at one of those texts and you try to and you see their difficulty as a an impediment to your understanding whatever truth is hiding behind them you're going to treat it a certain way you're going to think of the text as a retro as uh retrospective you're, you're going to as a document of something past and you're going to try to get back into that past singular isolated truth yes and then you're going to say now i know what it means but no <laughs> it never worked that way not for the rabbis not for the jews not for the early Christians, the first thousand centuries of 
the first uh, hundreds, the first thousand years of yes. our of our faith, everyone knew that. Everyone who read knew that the text was a live text, and I guess increasingly it's become treated as a a brittle kind of encrypted message. Yes. Much the way our teachers in high school would try to teach poems. They'd say, this is, there's something here. Yes. Let's get these poems out. Let's get the poem out of the way and get at the thing. Well, that's how a lot of, I think, people who self-identify as evangelical Christians read the scriptures as the scriptures are kind of in the way because they're unwieldy, they're paradoxical, yes. parabolic, um, a little contradictory if you look at it all at once. If you're actually reading them, yeah, yes. And and what they what they'd rather have is some certainty hiding behind it. But yes, you know, or as if you know. And, and I guess the worst thing that we do with that, um, no, is to extrapolate from that a sense that the future's already written. Hmm. I think that. I think that's the most dangerous thing we do so that we think that when we say God knows all and controls all. Uh, yes. We're, we're kind of ignoring one of the sort of centerpieces of our faith is that, no, we have to share. We're co-workers with this God. There's a we're participation all, element absolutely and if without that participation element we're this sort of uh, static yeah. stick figure waiting for something to happen yeah. uh, and what we do doesn't matter because the future's written you mentioned you, you used the word <laughs> fragile a minute ago when you talked about mm. the, 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 some folks approach to the sacred texts and the, the treatment of them of the text does have this kind of air of fragility the, be, the, you know to be careful with how you read interpret and discuss this thing because you in yeah. some way might break it when in in reality the thing that is fragile is are, the, the things that are fragile are my conclusions are like that's the thing that is fragile and and it is in fact one would hope the thing that is broken that that fragility that my conclusions you know my solidity with regards to this is how the yeah. world works that that yeah. would be the thing that actually breaks like water on the shore of this text that doesn't invite conclusion but That's invites really relationship yeah yeah, so, yeah. One, one would hope which is again what a one of the gifts of one of the gifts of uh the poetic tradition not just in the scriptures, although even that gets relegated to uh, textbook form. But one of the gifts of the poetic tradition among uh, contemporary practitioners of faith is that poetry does the work um, in readers of, I use this phrase a lot, of sort of this disorientation. I'm I'm disoriented in, in relationship to language I know or I think I know. Um, and leads me into what you mentioned earlier, a kind of... Um, a, a different kind of knowing that it's not a matter of like, this is the thing, this is the conclusion I've come to. And now I know it, I've controlled it. I've named it in his mind, but it, the kind of knowing that's more expansive and ongoing, that is an openness to mystery. This is very, it, poetry does that work of disorienting me towards, I think I know and inviting me into a very different kind of knowing. Yeah. Um, can you talk about, um, actually, I think what I want to do is there, there are words that, uh, and I do this with, uh, with some guests is it's kind of like an investigation of lexicon in, in a sense that there are words that sort of either uh, appear in, in your work or revolve around mm -hmm. your work. And all I want to do is I want to put a few words, kind of just kind of set them on the table and have you respond to the word, uh, and, and, and just kind of, whether there's a story or a, a, a kind of definition. And I want to begin with the word religion. It, uh, hmm. When I say the word religion, what happens in your mind, your soul? It, it, well, first thing I, I thought when you said that was, I wonder if that's why I don't use the word religion. 
exactly. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I don't blame the word for this, but uh, hmm. I guess more often than not, I use the word faith, where I guess I might have used the word religion. I speak of my faith or our shared faith. I think of the, when I think of our faith, the Christian faith, I think of not just the scriptures, but all those centuries of saints who have written and have lived those lived that life. And um, when I think of religion, I guess that becomes that seems like a step away from the faith. <laughs> In a way, it seems it, maybe it's it's the begin when we when we construct a religion. Um, with its tenets, I, I suppose, to some, unless those tenets are also appreciated as provisional, <laughs> what we're doing is we're ne we're closing in the faith and and saying this is the faith, but what about this? That's not the faith. Hmm. I, I love how Bishop Calistos where speaks of the church. He says. We can say where the church is. We cannot say where it isn't. Wow. Yeah, he was an Orthodox bishop. <laughs> and you know, and this was in, res in response to a lot of people clamoring to say, Orthodoxy is the is the only true expression of the faith. And, you know, I don't think he was, I think he was wise enough to know that that's not true. Yes. You know, why would you aver that? If it's not, it's not a true question, so you can't offer a true answer to it. Right. So what so what he said, well, we can say where the church is, but we can't say where it isn't. Wow, that's that fantastic. Is the members of body of Christ's body may well be outside the scope of what you would call or any one person would call identify as the church. Or even where Bishop Callistos Ware could I'd say this is the church. This this is but this these people participate in the faith. Uh, it's good. even though they may not participate in the church uh, and so when when i yeah that's just a long windy that's great no there's a lot here response to your provocation of what do i hear when i hear the word religion i think of i think of that kind of uh unfortunate constraining of a pretty vertiginous faith yeah a delicious satisfying faith you know, and confining it to the realms of a a package of what we would identify as a, a religion. So how's that? It's fantastic. This is why we do the practice. Um, <laughs> uh, the word education, you're someone who's working, he's, you've worked in academia, you've, you've, uh, you've published works that would be at least to some degree rightfully uh, used in educational set, uh, settings. Talk about talk about education. The word the word education. What does it mean to be educated? What is an educated person? Well, um, not to sound curmudgeonly, but uh, but you know, too many people forget what, how that what what that word. <laughs> they don't have enough Greek <laughs> to know that. Give us the Greek. <laughs> when one educes, that's the root of education. One draws out. You don't put stuff in and call that education. You draw out. So something in my students exists before I get in the room. Hmm. My job is to educe, is to draw it out so they recognize it and benefit from that recognition. So education really has to be understood as drawing from the aphib, the student, you know, the young uh, person uh, drawing into view something that's already theirs mm. and, and putting drawing it out so and putting it out in front so that they can see it and recognize it and benefit from that uh, education. That's so, beautiful. Well, it's it, it's etymology, man. It's, it is. <laughs> <laughs> that should be that should be the next volume. Let's get Kansas. <laughs> It's etymology, man. Uh, <laughs> um, talk about the word meaning. 
we 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 got into a moment ago when we talked about visual art and poetry and 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 folks will to some degree use the question like a crowbar like what does this mean i'm trying to get into it yeah. what 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 is meaning well look at that etymology as well uh the mean isn't all it's just the little <laughs> you you make meaning it's it's like you know Coleridge used to talk about uh he had his figure of speech when he talked about the acquisition of wisdom he spoke about landing places like a a winding staircase that you ascend but there are landing places along along that you know you go up this flight there's a landing place catch your breath get your bearings make your meaning that's the mean for the moment then you ascend again to the next landing place which is another place of meaning making a place where the mean mm. is apprehended. I love that image. But you don't stay at the landing place. You know, meaning has to be understood as an endless acquisition of, I guess what I'd like to call it truth. But I think, you know, I think that's too heavy-handed. Mm. But an endless acquisition of awareness, and so making meaning has to be understood as as no, nothing we ever do conclusively but always in part provisionally and then you know we gather up whatever gear we have and we climb another flight um poetry yeah. what is what is when i say poetry what happens in you oh yeah well pieces or as people who don't know how to pronounce greek would say poesis <laughs> but that'd be me <laughs> yeah <laughs> but uh it's a wonderful word it's you know it's it's all about making mm. we're making uh poetry is really a, a, you take all you can hold and you make something with it <laughs> something discreet that nonetheless gestures toward the enormity <laughs> yes that led to it and you know and in which it might participate in uh so poetry is is i'd say the highest form of poesis poesis mm. poesis and uh, um it's yeah i think that the poetic operation of language is is what distinguishes literary art from uh popular uh, literary writing from popular writing i guess is the degree to which the poetic operation of language operates in it. And so when, when I think of the poetic operation of language, it's that, it's that opening. It's yeah. that, uh, you know that when you're reading, uh, this happens in novels, happens in dramas, uh, theatrical texts, it happens in some songs, some musical texts, you know, it's when the word is framed in such a way that you see more going on than than the word itself discreetly might have done. But in this combination of words, that word opens up for you. And um, the poetic operation of language is is the life. It's where we glimpse the the living nature of language, Beautiful. certainly of scripture and of of great poems. Poems, you know, that's why you can read a great poem subsequent times and yes you can see something more each time or a sacred text in the same way absolutely you know you read a a verse one day and it serves you it delivers to you what you need but it's not exhausted no in that activity you know you read it you read that verse the next day or several days later and it may deliver something else to you that you need that moment so uh, this sort of participatory imperative yeah is, is operating invisible in that in that uh example you know that's good the text is alive because it can support continuous continued uh benefit for in conversation and engagement over time yeah and and that's what you are that's what you become a, con, a conversational partner with god when you read the yes. scriptures or when you read i think in, when you read nature you know, mm. nature itself is just something of a text 
which uh, benefits from our attending to it. So that's we, really good. Well, we benefit by attending to. Yes. Um, I didn't say up for this, so we don't have to necessarily do it. I don't know if you have a, a, um, a, a, a specifically the the volume I mentioned before. I have it right here next to me. An Afra. If you have that near you, um, they're fantastic. It's it's beautiful, and so at some point here, I, I I'd like you to, I'd like to wrap things up in the next few minutes with with two points. And one is I'd love for you to read a piece from. Uh, from this volume, either uh, one of your choosing that you you strongly prefer, or I continue to come back to the piece called Slow Pilgrim. Okay. Um, so I that would be my choice. But if you have something else, um, I would love I'd love you to uh, read that piece for us. Yeah, right here, I'll read that piece. Thank you. It, you know, it has an epigraph. You know how epigraphs work, right? Epigraphs are what lazy poets do to save time <laughs> after 10 volumes you get you you're allowed some of these permissions <laughs> there's a new one coming out in about a year called uh lacunae hmm. just so you know looking forward to it i am too uh i saw the road and saw myself and fled that's the epigraph i saw the road and saw myself and fled suppose the pilgrim's ready Let's say that he begins. Let's say he lifts his bed and stuffs it in a sack, then wanders off into the rain, determined now at least to make a fitting end. Thus, of one late given day, while cedars weep and hemlocks dip their crests, the bracken drip and tremble as a pool of buried green. As he sets off to beat the underbrush, an indistinct and mute immensity obtains en route. Just so. Therein, a long-held dim desire for what might pass for progress leads him to a road and lately to a narrow path inscribed to cross a wilderness where with something of an unaccustomed turn, that same vague wish becomes a taste for the vertiginous, a vast expanse upheld, if not contained, just here, among the bracken, as perhaps within one's own walled garden's hidden grove. The wish occasions then another opening and momentary glimpse, within which more than can be gathered is nonetheless beheld. That's kind of what we've been talking about in a nutshell, isn't it? Yes, yeah. it is. I had, I, had, I had forgotten that part. That's a beautiful piece. But evidently I've been working its terrain <laughs> subconsciously. And if, if you wanted the second one, I would finish with Nepsis, or Nipsis, which is Yeah, let's do I, I would love that. I want. I want to have you answer one more question, and then yeah, I, and then and then we'll close it out with that second with yeah. that second poem. Is um, one of my introductions to you came through Gregory Wolf, um, who oh. uh, you've worked with on a, a couple yeah. volumes in in a few different contexts. Yeah. And um, at one of the Glenn workshops, uh, I was uh, introduced to the <laughs> to the phrase. I think it might have honestly been on a bumper sticker. You know, beauty, beauty will save the world. Was this? Uh, it's, yeah. it, which they at do the time, have a sticker that says that. There it is, uh, and it was. You know, there's a way in which, uh, at least for me, in, initially, like it was cute. It was a cute thought. He was dead serious about it. Like it was a very serious expression for him, yeah. and he's a very serious person. And so I was a little off. I, I was, uh, I was struck by this. Uh, it's the kind of thing again that appears on a bumper sticker, but. For him and the way he communicated it in an essay and and during one of the presentations at uh, at the Glen, um, it was an essential it was a, it was an essential driving truth for uh, for an artist. Yeah. In a time when, and this is and, and by that in a time I mean now when everything seems uh, on fire, the, uh, every issue is a burning issue. Uh, mm -hmm. urgency, urgencies abound. Everything is of importance. Everything yeah. seems to be of the utmost importance. Yeah. 
in seasons like this, Art publicly uh, seem uh, at least in conversation seems to get relegated to uh, something that's less necessary. It's a thing we can get to when we're done do taking care of the business of life. Right. Yeah. Wolf's expression counters that. And I believe this now, but I would love to hear you articulate why is art, specifically poetry, necessary now? Like, why is it necessary and good yeah. for for people to be writing their poems and reading poetry? Why is art, specifically poetry, necessary now? Interior strength is necessary now. Mm -hmm. Interior, uh, yeah, let's stick with interior strength. And how does one acquire interior strength? Um, say through stillness. And I think art avails for us a, a moment of stillness. Uh, great art in particular stops us and gives it and quiets us. And all the clamor falls away from not forever, but for a moment. And in that moment, one re regains a sense of self, a sense of one's connection to the mystery. And in that stillness, uh, we find food for the journey and we then take up our arms and our burdens and proceed to assist the world how we might with our voting and our rabble rousing and, uh, and our door knocking. And, uh, you know, that's all important work, that exterior work, but, but to have the strength for it, you have to have the resources. So food for the journey is what art provides. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I did also, as you were mentioning, beauty will save the world, you know, no less than Dostoevsky and Flannery O'Connor have also employed the term. He might he might have borrowed it some. <laughs> yeah. And so um it's it's not a new idea. It's it's a but it's a it's one that I think stands up. Um yeah, it's not to dis, it's not to discount the need to act and the need to do in the world. Uh I guess to assist. In the in in the liberation of the world, mm. uh, not, not that's fantastic. Just sense of that, I mean. Um, but you have to have some interior resource to have the energy to do that, and and that's what that's what art can do. That's what beauty does. That's what um, prayer is probably the the most the most available access to that interior strength is to is to have a rule of prayer and to find that stillness in your prayer and then go from that into whatever you must confront wonderful yeah, yeah. uh would you please uh end our time with that yeah. piece remind me the title one more time it's uh, in english we would say nepsis and it, it's a word for watchfulness in greek it's nepsis Notice how the piercing winter chill fails quite to enter the heart's bright furnace. Oh, brilliant, bright furnace. Notice how the yammering electorate also fails to obtain against the heart's quiet any ground, any likely purchase to nudge the weight of long acquired stillness. Oh, pulsing stillness. What heat, what light, what pulse is this? What recourse has the weary pilgrim save to stand before that endless beckoning, to draw his every scattered member into one, to draw and so be drawn? What shall he say? O braided being, include within your deep enormity this, these, every, all. Yeah, so there we go. I hope that's useful. It was fantastic. Thank you. It was beautiful.
thank you for your time this morning. Justin, I appreciate it, man. My pleasure. And thank you for joining me for this episode of the At Sea Podcast. If you'd like to follow up with Scott and, and check out his work, his most recent book is fantastic. And you can pick it up uh, actually through heartsandmindsbooks.com. Just go to literally heartsandmindsbooks.com. It's also available wherever else you might want to buy books. It's fantastic. All of his poetry work is really, honestly, uh, I'm, I'm a fan. Um, if you would like to, on the other hand, or as well, be part of the team of people who continue to make this podcast and a few of the other things happen, go to patreon.com backslash Justin McRoberts and join the team. We would love to have you in our corner. Until next time.